Welcome all you adventurous readers to the epic worlds of Alfred Durblin, where we explore the life and works of this fascinating but little known early 20th century writer, brought to you by the website beyondalexanderplatz.com. Welcome to episode three on Durblin's early life up to the time he left school. I'm Chris Godwin. And I'm Katie Kavanagh. Uh, so Chris, uh, we're going to start with where Alfred Durblin grew up and what were his early memories of his hometown? Sure. Yeah, OK. He was born in Stettin, which is now Polish Szczecin, uh, which in uh, his, his later memory he described as a miserable, decaying provincial town. So he clearly didn't have a high opinion of it. He remembers there was a noisy annual fair and he remembers the town hall with big steps going up to it where the children used as a playground. But uh, while, while his siblings and other children were out in the streets rushing up and down with their whips and spinning tops and so on, he preferred to stay at home reading. He describes how once he was strolling through the annual fair and came upon a booth which displayed a horrible lurid coloured canvas picture of a murder. The boy ran home distraught. He couldn't put the picture out of his mind. It terrified him. And long years later, the awful impression it made, the torment he tried to escape, remained with him. Goodness. And so that, I, I guess, he's so imaginative that that must have um, found its way through into, into his writing. Well, very much so. Um, the, uh, I mean, the question of the, the scenes of violence in... Dublin's epic novels mm. comes up again and again among the, the, the critics mm. and on the one hand people say oh this writer Dublin he must revel in violence if mm. he can depict it so clearly mm -hmm, mm -hmm. on the other hand people say no no he's grieving about the violence that has been a constant accompaniment of humanity going back you know going, going way back mm. and you know it's grieving it's not relishing the uh, uh, mm. the violence and um and then so talk to us about um the uh like uh the rulers of the time the the right oh the uh the prussian state mm -hmm. right remember i mean dublin was born a few years after the um the german empire was founded in other words prussia had sort of brought all the other bits of germany into its um, into its umbrella to create the German Empire after mm -hmm. the uh, the Franco-German War yep. of 1870. Um, so the schools were part of the Prussian state. Uh, they were the uh, you know the institutions that would provide the uh, obedient bureaucrats and uh, um, military officers and and uh, clergymen and perhaps occasionally a writer who would uh, support the Prussian state, mm -hmm. hopefully. Um, but in, uh, in one particular year, 1888, it was called the Year of Three Kaisers, because two Kaisers died three months apart, right? Oh, so okay. you had uh, Wilhelm I in March, and then Frederick III in, in June. Mm -hmm. And each time... The school sort of called all the all the students together and told them this is a very solemn occasion and mm. we must all be very very sad mm -hmm. uh, and so on. And Dublin found it rather he did, wasn't quite sure how to react. He tried to squeeze out a tear, but then wasn't sure if it was a real mm -hmm. tear. Mm -hmm. um, so he uh, he always had a 
shall we say a sort of more sort of independent attitude towards mm -hmm. uh, an, uh, authorities above him shall mm -hmm. we say so chris before you said it was he he found it difficult to create a, a tear if you like an artificial so to, to grieve with the collective grief that was around do you think it was because he was he was a daydreamer and he was you know imagine he was just in his own world imagining up different things and so actually he was kind of unaware of the collective grief around him or unaware that she should be you know he's only 10 well, so okay. i think he had a he had a very individual imagination but i think it was just that uh, um you know the school was a very kind of official place mm. and i'm sure that even in the primary school he um may not have always felt that the you know the school was on the side of the individual it was yeah. an, an agent of the state Certainly and the state time, was now it? saying we must all be very sad because the emperor has died yeah. right um so, so okay but how really do i feel about this and he yeah. wasn't quite sure okay chris so i should probably ask you our second question now so can you describe derblin's family background um, and any interesting details about his parents or his siblings yeah. or anything like that? Yeah, sure. I mean, in his later life, of course, um, Dublin was very firmly uh, connected with Berlin. But there used to be a joke in Berlin in the sort of first half of the 20th century that uh, nobody was ever born in Berlin. Everybody was an immigrant there. But if you go back a generation, his parents were the children of emigrants from Eastern Europe mm -hmm. into the um, towns and cities of Europe further west, the more settled areas of Austria and Germany and Poland mm -hmm. uh, and so on. So they were Jewish. You know, his ancestry was uh, was Jewish. But he was actually born in Stettin, which is a, a seaport in um, what, well, it was originally Polish, but then uh, was became Prussian in the 1720s, and the town enjoyed very rapid growth after the German Empire was founded in uh, 1871. The grandfather on the mother's side, uh, who apparently spoke better Yiddish than he did German, was a peddler from a town further further east called uh, Samter. This little town only had about 4,000 people in the late 19th century, including a few hundred Jews, had been Polish and then was Prussian from 1793 to 1918 and then became Polish again. So this was fluctuating borders all across the centre of Europe. And the family had already migrated to Stettin when uh, Max, Alfred Derblin's father, was still a child. Right. right. So uh, the father's mother was, uh, the surname was Jessel, and she was related to an operetta composer. So Dublin and his siblings all thought that their artistic talents must have come Came down through, uh, through that line. Mm -hmm. On the other side, the, uh, the mother's family were very mercantile, very focused on practical matters of earning a living, mm -hmm. uh, very little time for the frivolities of uh, art and literature and so on. Mm -hmm. And this turned out to be quite an explosive um, meeting of different types of personality right yeah so uh, we'll be talking about that, about that a little bit later on okay Dublin recalls his father um, as a, a happy-go-lucky type but very gifted he could play the violin and the piano and he'd never had any lessons never had music lessons but he gave music lessons to the children 
he said the piano was mostly used during the day for cutting cloth because his father ran a big kind of tailoring business. Okay. Uh, kind of wholesale, yeah. you know, off the peg uh, clothing. And dust from the fabric would drop between the keys, so they had to be cleared out before the piano would, would, would play. Um, and the father also composed, and one of his pieces was even arranged for the organ by the music teacher in his, uh, uh, in his school in Stettin. Okay. Oh, well, the secondary school he attended for one term before the family had to move. Mm -hmm. The father tried to teach himself composition. He sang, not too badly. Occasionally mm -hmm. wrote poetry. He was good at sketching. Mm -hmm. So a very, very artistic type. But unfortunately, you know, no head at all for business or mm -hmm. real interest in business. Yeah, so his mother was born of this family of shopkeepers. Um, her brothers, which turned out to be fortunate later on, had migrated to Berlin in the 1860s and became successful timber merchants. Her siblings spoke German, but also spoke Polish, and a somewhat weakened Yiddish, um, Dublin uh, puts it. And he describes how when his mother wrote to her relatives, he, she preferred to use what he calls Yiddish letters, which means cursive Hebrew script. Right. Which he said looked like Turkish or Arabic. And too, this is quite a complicated linguistic environment mm. that he was uh, you know already present in his mm -hmm, life mm -hmm. even from uh, very early on and so chris how many brothers or sisters did he have uh well he was the he was the second youngest of five uh, he had two older brothers an older sister and a younger brother and all the brothers had some kind of artistic uh, inclinations uh, even the ones who uh, you know, for economic reasons, had to go into um, business or you know, mm -hmm. doing apprenticeships and uh, and so on. But they were keen amateur musicians. One of his older brothers, Hugo, uh, secretly took training as an actor when he was a teenager because he knew the mother would be very cross oh, if he took up okay. this uh, uh, unproductive occupation. Right. And became a playwright. And then in, in 1930, he set up Berlin's first talking film school. Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah. And was he successful at that? Uh, well, they only had a year or two to go uh, before the the big disaster, you know, of 1933 uh, took over. Oh, so. we're going to talk about that in a minute. No, no, no. We're talking about the big disaster of 1933 to 1945. Oh, right? OK, fine. The, <laughs> the earlier disaster would have been okay. strictly his family family business. All right, OK, yeah. got you. Yeah. yeah. Okie dokie. And then yeah. uh, his sister? His sister Meta, his older sister... Um, who we'll talk more about, I think, in some later episodes. There's some mm -hmm. things that spilled over into his uh, his writing that he remembers from uh, from her life. But she, uh, yeah, she had quite an interesting life. She mm -hmm. uh, she 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 married a a Russian um, carpenter and furniture maker, mm -hmm. and they moved between uh, London and Antwerp and uh, Istanbul. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so on, but and uh, so she, in in her own way, she was drawn to creativity, uh, even well, though she took after her mother. And I suspect she had an adventurous life, or something. I suspect so, yes. that her mother was quite creative as well, because you said that she would write in a Yiddish script. Yeah, and where Dublin said it, it looked more like Arabic or something like that. Yeah. that well, actually, well, that's in in itself is probably there's it's quite creative a creative process to go through writing something down yeah. that's not necessarily that you have to think about carefully well and... maybe yes but we'll uh, you know later on we'll uh, you know we'll, we'll come to the mother's virtues okay. uh, later on yes yeah um but meta his sister 
was living quite close to Dublin in east of Berlin in 1919 when uh, there was a kind of workers uprising um, you know this is after the end of the war and the government was very new republic government was tottering and so on and uh, the suppression of this um, uprising in the east of Berlin was incredibly brutal involved artillery and aeroplanes bombing the the, the streets and so on and, and Meta um, was hit by some grenade shrapnel Oh, she was trying to fetch milk for her children right. during all this bullets whizzing around and yeah. so on. And she didn't know what had happened, but mm -hmm. she had to lie down when she got back home. And then it turned out, you know, there's blood coming everywhere. And a day mm. later, she was dead. Oh, goodness. Yeah. That's, that's terribly yeah. tragic. So, I mean, Doberlin wrote a very strong um, essay published in a, uh, in a journal in 1919 about the, uh, uh, that rebellion and, the, and its suppression, which has some... You know, interesting light on his his political attitudes mm. later on because he he expressed contempt for the very poor leadership of the the rebels. Mm -hmm. Right, he said if they if you know if they couldn't even manage to succeed at something like this, then you know how can they govern a whole country? That's the right. thing. Goodness, oh, that's really sad. And and is that the tragedy that befell the family? Oh no 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 no. Well. Uh, we're, we're going still to come on to that. that. We're going to come on Goodness. to that. Sorry, we're keeping everybody on tenterhooks. Okay. Here, yes. Well then, um, so maybe we should go back to, although that's very sad, maybe we should go back to um, how he recalled his school days. Uh, yes. Okay, so uh, uh, in Easter of 1888, remember this year of three emperors, mm -hmm. the ten-year-old um, was accepted into the local um, gymnasium or secondary school in Stettin. But three months later, his father ran away, and that was the family disaster. Oh, now why did his family, why, why did his father run away? Are we getting to that later? We'll get to that, yes. <laughs> oh, no! <laughs> <laughs> okay. No, because we're going to hear it in Dublin's own words in the, in the reading that we'll do right. later on in this, okay. uh, this episode. But anyway, he... I feel so, there's so much still to uncover. So he had to leave that school just after one term and was then sort of put into private tuition mm. classes, which basically consisted of copying out pages and pages of... Mm. some sentence from some poem or something to improve your handwriting it was no so no school, education at all the school that he left was that a fee-paying school then did they um i'm not sure about that i think probably they there was so there probably there were some fees involved yes otherwise yeah. why did he have to leave yeah so yeah possibly okay gosh that must have had a massive uh, but he hadn't been there for very long did you no say? just for just for the one term okay yeah okay and then after the family had to migrate to Berlin. Mm -hmm. um, he was enrolled in the local parish school, which was a kind of, I don't know, and five, so how old, five to 14. Or how old was he? Ten, ten years old. He was 10 when he, they migrated, and without yeah. the father. Father is skedaddled, okay. yes. Um, and then uh, three years later, in 1891, mm -hmm. he was the only one of his sibs who, siblings who managed to enter high school, a real high school. But um, his schooling had been interrupted for. And so, did it? Three... Can, can we just go back ever yeah. so slightly? Did they have family in Berlin? Did or was it completely? Did they just up and think we're no, going? No, this to is Berlin? A, you know I mentioned earlier. Some of the, the mother's brothers had moved to Berlin in the eighteen right. sixties okay. and become successful timber merchants. Right. And so this was 
so uh, this they... was the anchor that the family could uh, okay. moor themselves to in the in the in that the makes more dire sense. situation. Okay. Yeah. yeah, but because because his uh, education had been so sort of interrupted, he was sort of three classes lower than his actual age group. Oh, that must yeah. have been really difficult. Must have been for hard. Him. I mean, he he was very small of stature, so it didn't yeah. stand out so much in terms of you know his physical size, mm. but in terms of you know the the way his brain worked, he was mm. obviously way ahead of the the other kids, which meant he was kind of top of the class for the first two or three years. Right. But then gradually, as the the kind of the the rigidity of the Prussian school system, you know, imposed itself more and more, he mm. uh, he he had, you know he got lower grades and was considered a bit of a rebel. Um, which almost, so was he always three years behind then? Yes, he didn't he didn't actually get his school leaving certificate, the Abitur, until he was twenty two. Oh, yeah, which is quite remarkable. Yeah. And he almost didn't get the abitur because the teachers had primed so the state inspector to see this chap as a rebel, oh, and the state no. inspector sort of gave him a very hard time at the uh, the, the Viva Voce exam. So why yeah. was he put in three years behind? Tell me again. Well, because he'd he'd, he'd not he'd not gone through the standard through year the by year system of the the primary and schools and secondary schools. And so they wouldn't the put him schools. into the age that he was just no. because they felt he was missing. No. Yeah. Even though. He was successful the three years. The class that he was put in, he was the top of that. And they oh, 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 yeah, he was, yes, he was, he was, yes, he was, he was getting very good grades in the first few years. Yeah. Oh, that's crazy. Uh, yeah. Yeah, no wonder he became disillusioned with it all and went <laughs> off the rails. Um. Well, oh, well, I mean, the, I mean, the Prussian state schooling was a, you know, it was an instrument of, of discipline, mm. basically. It was ensuring that you were, breeding a, a generation of bureaucrats and mm. uh, school teachers and clergymen mm. and you know perhaps one or two of these flighty people called writers or mm. something who who'll all be supportive of the of the authoritarian state and if you're so, quite creative and you've had a, a big trauma and you're suffering and you're not allowed to you know be creative you're being squashed then yeah, it's yeah. going to come out in different ways. Yes, it? I mean he he was consistent. Like how do you cope yeah. with that? that he was, you know, he was flight. consistently reading kind of unauthorized writers, mm. and you know, if the teachers found him with a with a book which wasn't on the curriculum, they would uh, you know be quite sharp about mm. it, and they'd say you know he should concentrate on you know what the school tells him mm. to read. So you know, nowadays we call that an ace, an adverse childhood experience, which would affect you know ev everything that the that. Well, yeah, yeah. terrible. <laughs> but he was, uh, you know, that's probably. A, I'm guessing that's probably why he went into neurology. Then he was always oh, thinking about. Well, okay, that was maybe one stimulus. Yeah. But I mean, he was, you know, as a, as a, as a teenager in school, he was devouring loads of non-authorized writers like the the uh, early nineteenth-century uh, Kleist and Hölderlin, mm. uh, sort of poets who wrote very very kind of intense mm. um, poems and stories and so on. Dostoevsky, he discovered, mm. um, Nietzsche, the philosopher, mm -hmm. and Schopenhauer, another philosopher. He was, uh, you know, he was devouring all of these. And he said he started writing at the age of fourteen. Right. Uh, he said his obsession with writing began early. His first pieces were written in a little blue notebook. And what did I note down at the time? God is good. He is goodness in the world. And that was his solution to the riddle of God. So I'm assuming he didn't just write about religion at the age of 14, or was that just, that's all he was, 
Uh, well, since he he remembered doing this, you know, decades later he remembered his first writing. But back. you know, this was obviously this this you know religious questions are obviously important in society and yeah. in in the schooling. You know, you yeah. must believe in God. Just just do what we say, pray when we say this uh, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, this kind of thing. Um, but he was you know he was quite frightened of his teachers, and he he'd been entrusted with the key to the classroom store cupboard at one point oh. and then oh dear he, he you know he kept it uh, hanging around his neck mm -hmm. but then oh dear one day he couldn't find it <gasps> and he was terrified to tell anybody oh, and no. you know a new key would have cost five marks or something and uh, you know he didn't have two pennies to scrape together and 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 so for weeks and weeks and weeks he was terrified he was going to be found out and uh, you know he was still the class monitor for this <gasps> store cupboard, and oh God, somebody's going to find out. I haven't actually got the key to lock it again, oh, and, no. and so on. But eventually, his uh, his mother found out about this yeah. and just marched off to the school and explained to the teacher. And the teacher said, "Okay, we'll get a new key," <laughs> <laughs> and there was no problem at all. Phew! Goodness, uh, well, that's so, another. It's all these things happening. Yes, and then uh, you know a year or two later, as one of his classmates was being accused by several other classmates and by several teachers of being a petty thief who'd mm -hmm. been uh, picking things up that he shouldn't uh, over a long period. Mm. And Dublin says, uh, I, I don't think he's a thief, which immediately... He's talking The back. finger was pointed, he's a rebel, this yeah. guy. You know, he, why doesn't he go along with the majority? Mm. Mm. Yeah. The last thing to say about his school days is that Alfred was very proud that as he descended the steps outside the school for the last time, he spat very vigorously on the steps. Oh, goodness. Disgusting. Yeah. Well, this is his, uh, his feeling about the school and the, yeah. uh, what it had put him through. Okay. Um, and so now, finally, well, not finally, but are we able to get on to the big disaster? Yes, disaster? let's get to the big disaster now. So this catastrophe that significantly impacted Durblin's life, how did it unfold? Right. What was okay. It so the the his father and his mother had been kind of pressured into marrying by their respective parents. Right. Right. Even though the kind of the personalities a good, a good match as a good match, even though the personalities involved were not in good match at in all. Yeah. Right. So the. Um, the father sort of inherited his father's tailoring business and managed, you know, during the boom years of the early stage of the German Empire, managed to sort of expand it a bit. So he was getting orders from the big Hamburg uh, department stores and so on for off the peg clothes. Mm -hmm. So he employed quite a lot of young ladies mm -hmm. to uh, cut out the clothes. Um, and we've already talked about his artistic inclinations and the fact he was, you know, uh, taught himself music to the stage where he could actually compose and, and uh, mm -hmm. um, have, uh, you know, have the school set one of his um, compositions. songs, uh, compositions, yeah. But he had no, no talent for hard work. Right. And he had a, well... Or work in a different way. Well, uh, yes, and... Um, he had a roving eye, shall we say. Right. And uh, we'll, well, as we come to the reading from his autobiography in, um, in, a, mm. in, a, in a minute, we'll find out that uh, Sophie, so, Sophie would go out with her umbrella through the town's parks to see whether or not she could spot him with a arm-in-arm arm with some young thing. Oh, no. Mm. Terrible. Yeah. Oh, I don't like him now. 
Well, uh, eventually, um, one day in the summer of 1888, his father, Max, um, says, oh, I have to go off to Mainz uh, to see about selling some clothes in mm. Mainz. So they see him off at the station. Uh, luckily, his boots have just come back from the uh, um, the bootmaker. They've been repaired. Um, and so they all send there, wave him off at the station. But strangely enough, the train he got onto was headed for Hamburg. Right. And when he got to Hamburg, the next they heard of him was a postcard saying, off to America. Oh, no. Yeah. I will send you mountains of gold, he said, which mm. is a quotation from some Latin play, I, I, I think. Okay. Uh, and he so was he... escaping with a young lady. So he had an affair. Well, he he was left, having an affair. He was yes. having an affair. Left mm. the the home. Left his children. Yes. Four children. Yes. Five that's, children. Five children. That's really sad. No. And huge amounts of debts. Right. Which is where away. the where the mother's sterling character came into play because right. eventually okay. she paid off all those debts through years of taking in other people's washing and mm -hmm. and saving every penny and. Uh, bringing up the children mm -hmm. uh, as, as, as best she could. But, uh, of course, Max doesn't earn mountains of gold in New York. He's mm -hmm. a complete failure there. And so he sails back to Hamburg mm -hmm. and settles down with uh, young uh, Henrietta, um, who's 20 years younger than him. And was it Henrietta that he went to New York yeah. with? Okay. Yeah. Uh, so that's uh, good that he remained with her. Yeah, they remained for the rest of their lives. Yes, yes, Good. yeah. Oh, okay. But living, living in quite, quite, you know, quite sort of genteel poverty in, uh, in Hamburg. Okay. Um, but and then did he uh, make contact with his, his children again after that? Well, he actually persuaded uh, Alfred's mother Sophie that he was a reformed character, and if she would only come to Hamburg, they could all get back together again. But was he still with Henrietta? <sighs> This <laughs> very tricky. It's very tricky. Yeah. Anyway, the whole family moved off to Hamburg, and right. they spent six months there until Sophie realised that you know this Henrietta is still there still in the background, the scene. and uh, uh, and you know there was another big row, and that was it. And off they went back to Berlin. Right. Yeah. Do so. you think that it, part of him was, oh, actually, you know, he, she, Sophie, will be able to to solve our financial problems or do you think, he or just not? washed his hands i think he just washed, washed his, his hands. hands of them yes well, that's so sad yeah. but i mean when when max the father died mm. it was only the oldest brother went to his funeral there was, there was nobody else at all okay. there at the funeral yeah mm. quite sad that but sad. you know he just decided his uh, he, he just really had enough of the the marriage and yeah. you know he wasn't going to go back to it but uh, I mean, I thought for a reading in in 1917, Derblin scribbled several pages of, mm. uh, you know, what seems to have been the beginning of an autobiography. But these mm -hmm. pages were only discovered um, after he died in the in the archives. Right. Um, but as I say, 1917, he was coming up to his 40th birthday. And he thought, well, it's time he sets down some thoughts about his early years. And I think as we read this, we're going to see just how kind of tormenting all these um, memories and and traumas mm. of his early years mm -hmm, mm -hmm. were still with him, even as he was now entering into the best decades of his life. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, um, 
who's going to read the reading? Well, I think it, you probably should because it's if it's Durblin's voice. It's you, Durblin's you voice, should. yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, shall we begin? Let's begin. Right. So, these are no trivial matters. The shocks and excitements under which I embark on this account of my life, which impel me to this beginning. There's an unnatural physical fire, a heat, which I must confront with self-observation, revisiting the past. Bromide is no help. I can't sleep. My appetite has disappeared. I must relieve the pressure in my breast, the restless unease that drives me through streets and squares and back to my room. I fling myself down, lie there without a word. I'm in torment, haunted. I hope haunted by myself. I am approaching forty, grey hairs at the temples, much that I once found enticing now means nothing to me. I will tell no untruths in these lines. I want to help myself, but I'm not yet calm, not by a long chalk. Is there such a thing as a father you can look up to? It must be such a lovely cocooning feeling. It's hard on someone like me, who for hours or days or months at a time is haunted and no one offers shelter. A god, such a nice concept, proud and wise in the ways of humans, this concept. It says, there is no human being you can turn to, God alone can help. This god, who was produced by mistrustful humans. The strange thing is, I often have the urge to write an autobiography. I resist, I'm still young enough. I've got other things to do than look back, but my earlier deeply cherished conviction that I still have time has quite faded now. I have the feeling life is really not so expansive. I don't have so much time, not now. And once upon a time it was my most precious thought. It's all right to be idle, just stroll along. And at this point he now moves to a third person account. So the boy is Durblin himself. Stettin. In, my, in his memory, a miserable, decaying provincial town with a noisy annual fair in the Parada Platz. The steep steps of the town hall were a playground. He left Stettin behind as a ten-year-old boy with his family under difficult circumstances. His father was the cause. His father was a, well, a, a superior kind of master tailor a maker of ready-to-wear clothing for major department stores. He employed tailors and cutters and seamstresses and sewing girls. They occupied one or more workrooms in or near our house, long tables on which cloth was cut with huge shears, gigantic cupboards full of bolts of cloth. His house had a view of the tree-lined avenue. Once old Kaiser Wilhelm came by on his way to the Paradeplatz. Prince Bismarck was there a wrinkled little yellow head under an enormous shiny cuirassier's helmet. The procession puzzled rather than impressed him. He was especially disappointed by the oft-praised Bismarck. The old Kaiser died when he was in his first year of secondary school, making a complete hash of Latin and arithmetic. He went home, handkerchief in hand. Now and again maybe he dried a tear, he thought it fitting. But he wasn't sad in the least, he was just unsure how to comport himself after the class teacher's lugubrious, grandiose oratory. 
A few months later, flags again flew at half-mask when the Kaiser's son died. He had no idea how to react. He'd wander the streets to see what others, the adults, were doing. He was a gentle, very strange boy, his father's pet. Because of his big head, he acquired among his siblings the nickname Fathead. They were four brothers and a sister. He was the second youngest. He made poor progress in primary school. The first year of secondary school was already hard for him. He sat way at the back. But at home he read and read whatever came into his hands. While his siblings played with whip and spinning top out in the street, at the town hall, he was reading. He was already short-sighted. He inherited this bad trait from his father. The spectacles prescribed by the optician were refused by his father. So for many subjects he had to sit right at the front, near the blackboard. He had blonde, very pale blonde hair down to his shoulders. At that time he was considered a pretty child. He was often out in the streets by himself. Once he strolled through the annual fair. A booth displayed a horrible, luridly coloured canvas picture of a murder. The boy ran home distraught, couldn't put the picture out of his mind. It terrified him. Long years later the awful impression it made, the torment he tried to escape, remained with him. He often went to the synagogue, where his father sang in the choir. His father was very musical, played both violin and piano to an average standard, taught the older children the basics. He tended to lash out. Beatings were not infrequent. He also sketched little pictures that he coloured in. But what the many-sided, gifted, flighty, shiftless man did best was something else. His wife had good reason to be jealous. Finally, one of his seamstresses came on to him. The word at home was that he had assignations in parks with this young and very pretty creature. Father was anyway not often at home. There was little family life to speak of. Now he spent many nights away as well. Once he was discovered by mother in some public park in Stettin, and screaming at the woman she wrecked her parasol. One day father announced he had to make a trip to Mainz, said goodbye as calm as you like. The boy helped him on with his travelling boots, received just in time from the cobblers. But one early morning mother came weeping and wailing into the room where we slept. A telegram or letter from father had arrived. He wrote from Hamburg. He was on his way to America. I shall offer you mountains of gold. This was what destroyed the family. Up until then we were becoming comfortably off. At once everything had to be liquidated. Representatives from Hamburg came to collect the stock. Later, walking with his mother, the boy peered all around to see if anyone was looking. He was ashamed of their notoriety. The whole town knew his father had absconded to America with the seamstress. My mother, initially completely at her wit's end, was brought to Berlin by her well-off brothers. An endless train journey in third class. Finally, as they approached Berlin, the boy could no longer suppress a minor natural need, which he daren't mention while his mother was chatting with other passengers about her Berlin relations. When they stopped at Schlesischer Station, the boy pushed his way desperately to the door, and a thin, never-ending stream betrayed his action and his release. The... You get now to the Berlin apartment. The apartment was small. They were in real poverty. The father sent nothing. The mother owned hardly anything. Her brothers kept our heads above water. The eldest son in the ninth grade in Stettin had to take an apprenticeship with the great firm of N. Israel in Spandauerstrasse. 
This was apparently a colossal event. The boss was spoken of like a king. The smallest details of the business were topics of conversation. They lived all packed together in a few little rooms on the ground floor. He was enrolled in a nearby parochial school. The school was in a rear courtyard. He was in the third class. He hadn't the slightest sense of having come down in the world. Only during the course of the year was it impressed on him, especially in interactions with the supportive, unsupportive rich uncles, that he belonged to a poor family. He was a success in this school. Once he even won a prize, an atlas. The fact that this atlas had a sticker in the front stating that it came from such and such a bookshop and antiquariat made him especially proud, since he didn't know that antiquarian meant second hand. And he told his aunt that he'd been given an antiquarian book, and when she explained it to him, his shame was bottomless, and he had no idea how to extricate himself. Oh, I feel sad for him. I kind of, oh, he's just so young and, and vulnerable. Yes, yes. And... But that's a, a very kind of in, intense emotion underneath all that uh, yeah. that little piece of uh, writing. Were real. Yes, I mean uh, in uh, in a later episode when we talk about his um, middle career, the most intense mm. phase of his career, he goes much more deeply into this autobiographical mm. situation, and we see how he he has to wrestle to really come up with a a kind of a a balanced mm. view of the whole family situation. So we can see that this really did have. Uh, some quite long-term consequences for the family uh, the, and, and his personal and creative journey then going forward. Oh, yes. Yes. Mm. But uh, he still had to keep his writing a secret because writing doesn't bring any money and so on. So, right. uh, yes, and there was a very amusing episode which we'll come to uh, uh, later on, I guess. Oh, what an interesting episode. What an interesting episode. Well, he Thank you uh, so much, Chris. I think, do you, I mean... Well, I'll tell it now, shall I? Shall we wrap up? Okay. Well, shall I tell it now? Yes, he, go uh, for it. <laughs> right, so soon after he left school, okay. uh, he wrote his second, what he called his novel. Yeah. I mean, it's just some quite short pieces of writing, you know, 100 pages or so. Okay. But uh, one of these... Now how old is he? He's 23, 20. early 20s, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, he wanted to get the advice of a famous um, German uh, philologist and, and, and uh, 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 linguistic science professor and so on, who lived mm. in, in, in Berlin. He, he approached him and said, would you please read my novel and got yeah. a very, uh, you know, heartening reply. Yes, please send it along. Happy to. Well, he, he, he went off to the address he'd been given, mm -hmm. but it was dark by the time he got there and he couldn't find the right house number mm -hmm. and so he crept away again and then sent it off by post right but because he didn't want any return post coming back to his house where his mother would say what well, hello what's this what's, what's going this? on here yeah. he gave a, a, a post restaurant address okay right so anyway this parcel came back from the professor with uh, presumably with some complimentary marks or something, or something mm -hmm. on it but when Alfred went along to the post office to pick up this piece of post restaurant uh, mail they said mm -hmm. uh, right where's your id mm -hmm. and of course he'd given a false name <laughs> he oh, sent it no. off so he had no id and just had to leave it there lying oh, and then no. he said he, he had to rewrite the whole novel again from memory oh rubbish yeah. oh it's frustrating isn't it 
dear. Yeah. Oh, so, you, you think yeah. you're doing the right thing and then suddenly it bites you. <laughs> yes. Bites you in the bottom. Right, anyway, we could probably conclude I, it there, I yes, think. Yes, I think that's a that... good place to stop. Um, that's a, a really interesting. So that's our episode three. Um, done. Right, good. So goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Epic Worlds of Alfred Dublin. Join us next time to explore more about this fascinating writer's life and works. Meanwhile, visit the website beyond-alexanderplatz.com for posts about Dublin and some of his unjustly neglected contemporaries, as well as downloads of translations. So until next time, happy reading! <laughs>